Welcome to Technotopia, a podcast about a better future. I'm John Biggs. Today on the show, we have Elliot Pepper, a novelist, entrepreneur, and VC. This is Technotopia. Technotopia is brought to you by Happy Fun Corp. Happy Fun Corp is a design-driven technology company in Brooklyn, New York, that specializes in building mobile and web applications for startups and Fortune 500 companies. Whether it's a new mobile or web application that will help people experience the internet in a fun new way, or software that will interface with a new piece of top-secret hardware, Happy Fun Corp is always up to the challenge. Big or small, Happy Fun Corp loves building software and loves working with great people. Come build with them. HappyFunCorp.com Welcome back to Technotopia, a podcast about a better future. I'm John Biggs. Today on the show, we have Elliot Pepper. He's a novelist, entrepreneur, uh, maker. You wrote a book called Cumulus. Uh, it's your most recent book, and it's a story about uh, economic inequality in San Francisco. So it's nonfiction. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would, it would be sort of terrifying if it was fully nonfiction. Um, yeah, uh, a cumulus takes place in a, in a near future uh, that, that, yes, is sort of in a San Francisco Bay Area ravaged by economic inequality and persistent surveillance. So it's sort of a, a dark view on what might happen here in the Bay Area. Okay, so why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, what, what the book is about, and then, then we can go into your view of the future, I guess. Sure. So um, the, the, the book takes place in this near future setting, and um, one of the characters is the sort of major tech conglomerate that you could almost imagine if, if Apple bought Google, bought Microsoft, and, and then map that out <laughs> 10 or 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have, uh, uh, so we, we're living in this you know, new world where many of the services that we might now read about as speculative have become real, right? So uh, driverless cars, all that kind of thing. Um, and at the same time, many of the social issues that uh, that our society has sort of always struggled with are still there. So, you know, I think it's one of those things that if, if you look at the history of Silicon Valley, part of the irony for me, uh, having been born and raised in the Bay Area, is that uh, the technologies that that we are so successfully developing here, um, you know, often their their promise is that they really sort of uh, a rising tide lifts all boats, right? But that even in the Bay Area, um, there are still there's still you know areas that are have extraordinarily high crime that are super uh, like uh, racked by poverty. That's uh, systemic. So, you know, like most of the people growing up in those neighborhoods have a very tough time getting out. Um, and so we have these sort of social challenges Mm -hmm. that we've always wanted technology to solve for. Um, but even as technology gets more advanced and even as that advancement leads to economic prosperity, um, it, it doesn't necessarily, uh, sort of work for everyone. Um, and so those are some of the themes that are really, really core in Cumulus about, uh, you know, how, uh, you know, we, we talk about software eating the world, right? And um, the nature of software eating the world and the nature of computing means that you can create scalable solutions to problems, which sounds all good, right? Like, why would you ever want to have to create individual solutions to 
to problems if you could create one scalable solution that solved the problem all over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the 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 other side of the coin there is that people are the ones creating these scalable solutions. And so if you've created a scalable solution and it works everywhere, now you're the one who owns that solution, right? So now we've, by, by creating it in a scalable way, we've now reduced the amount of people who actually control how the solution works. And when we have something like software that really is um, growing into almost every aspect of our lives, right? Like pretty much every new device has some kind of computer in it. And there are very good reasons why you would want to have it networked. Mm -hmm. But the more that that happens, uh, it makes it much easier for power, both economic and political, in our society to become sort of ever more centralized. And centralized power has often severe social ramifications if you look at human history. Okay. All right. So let's let's unpack that. That was a that was quite a that was quite a rant. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's perfect. It's so I guess so I guess our question is how do we avoid a form of centralized power? We could argue that something like a Bitcoin, uh, even the internet is decentralized to a degree that is acceptable to us as uh, I don't know techno futurist users right it's it's decentralized but it's not completely decentralized we can't get on the internet without without paying time warner a lot of money at least in new york <laughs> right so there's no so the internet for all for all it's all it's goods it's basically a commodity at this point which is being sold to us the same way you would sell bananas i guess you could say and the people okay. who run the banana company are making all the money what is it about the future that's going to allow us to avoid that can we ever avoid that Oh, I think we can. I just think it's going to be messy. So, like, here's a good example. So, uh, uh, many in Silicon Valley, for good reasons, uh, like when the Internet was born, it was born mostly out of, well, either (coughs) government research programs, uh, research programs funded by the federal government. And Mm -hmm. then after that really grew because of hobbyists. Right. So people who really love just sort of like the 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 problem solving sort of like DIY nature of of figuring out what computers were, what what could be done with them. And I mean, this is true mostly on the software front. Right. Mm -hmm. Like it's a little harder to be a hobbyist with a clean room. But um, but, you know, for software in particular, uh, you know, there's this uh, cultural aesthetic within the software community that grew out of sort of self-reliance and, and being creative and, and being able to, you know, sort of diagnose and solve your own problems. Um, and, and also the nature of working on software is that, you know, like software is a language that interfaces with computer hardware. And so because you're using established heuristics that whoever wrote the language that you are working with set up, if you're smart enough, you can sort of always find the abstract conceptual solution to a problem you're facing Mm -hmm. because it was written by a human. So I think that there's culturally within the software community, um, and again, I think this is like hugely cool, um, you know, there's this mentality of one being able to sort of like if you're smart enough, 
you can fix anything. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and also that like, you know, that why would oversight ever be necessary? Right. Like <laughs> I'm doing it in my garage. Right. Like, I mean, I'm just coding something like that, like this, this, As you know, I'm trying to, Help the world as right? a uh, as a Bitcoin as a Bitcoin entrepreneur as I am right now. Uh, mm. That's 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 a lot of fun. What you just said. Why is oversight necessary? <laughs> sure, uh, is, it, well, yeah. why why is it necessary? Is a question. Is a question. Absolutely. Uh, why? When is it enforced, and why is it enforced so ridiculously? And why, in some cases, like Ethereum, for example, do you do you deal with a an enforcement that is so doctrinaire and so strong that you can basically destroy the entire system and still be beloved by the, uh, by the nerds who made it, which is another question, right? Yeah, absolutely. But I think that this is going to be one of the central questions that we wrestle with as a society over the next few decades, simply because, um, I, like I love that DIY culture. Um, but, but that, culture works well when you don't have huge potential ripple effects from something you're doing. Mm -hmm. Whereas right now, by its very nature, software is integrated into uh, infrastructure, into pretty much everything we do and everything we make, right? And because of that, um, you, it starts having impacts for many other people who are not programmers mm -hmm. right and and like and communities as a whole not just individual people and so um i think that what we're going to see and i think a lot of it is going to be messy and probably both sides are going to hate it but um is we're going to see a lot more politics in software basically right because now software is a victim of its own success it's mm -hmm. become so widespread that it literally impacts our entire society and how we work together and how our systems work and everything. And once you have something that has that much power and that much reach, um, by its very definition, politics will get involved because politics is the messy business of us not murdering each other. Yeah. And, you know, uh, and so I think that if you're a software engineer, this is going to be definitely frustrating because you're going to be dealing with people who know nothing about software and who are going to come to you with requests or demands um, that are going to piss you off, right? Because you're going to be like, "That's so dumb. We shouldn't make that. That's not how it works, right?" Well, that's I'm that's the yeah, that's that's the regular that's the regulation situation where you basically right. get a, you get an email or no, you get a letter that says, "Oh, you guys are doing exactly the wrong thing right now. Sorry, right. you're about to you were about to arrest you," and you're like, "No, this is stupid." Right. But like on the other hand, right, like like it, it goes in both directions. Like if you if you're making software and and it has a vulnerability you didn't realize that allows someone to like blow up BART or you know, or mm -hmm. sub you know, crash two subway trains into each other. Like I mean, it may be awkward, but hell yeah, I want some oversight. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I don't like I don't think it's fair for it for any t like anybody to expect that they are outside the I don't know, like outside the purview of of living and contributing in a community. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think that that is going to be a very messy 
area uh, that both sides will hate <laughs> for for many years. But you know, <laughs> it'll be really interesting. Like like you know, good big questions here are like data storage, for example, right? Like right now, like I mean. Software is like the ultimate tool for surveillance of any kind. I don't just mean like NSA surveillance. I mean like, oh, you're building an app and like you want to see how your users are interacting with this or that button on your app. And so you're, you know, you're like A-B testing different versions. Mm-hmm. Um, and But like all of that data is stored somewhere. And, it, you know, that, that storage, the, the, the data itself has value, which is sort of like where a lot of internet companies are currently making money. And, uh, but, but there are also big externalities to having so much data about individual people stored in a searchable way. Right. Mm So, I mean, you can imagine a million downside scenarios. And I think that as we move forward and more of those downside scenarios inevitably come to pass, we're going to have reactionary legislation passed to sort of like throttle that down or set rules on how you can sell people's data or store people's data, which is obviously going to piss off every software company. Like they don't want that. Mm-hmm. Right. But, but like tough luck basically, or, you know, like that, that's the, they've become so important that now that is important as well. Hmm. Okay. So it's abundantly clear why you're a novelist because because <laughs> you, you're, 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 I don't you're, stop talking. Well, you know, you speak, you speak in full, in full chapters. All right, so let's let's take this back to the to the main concept of the whole operation. So, what does the world look like in twenty years? In in your in your view, and it doesn't have to be. You don't even have to talk about uh, from a from even from your writing. What does what does your world look like? What does the world that you exist in look like? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that the, so I, 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 well, number one, I have no fucking idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, I, I think that from, from what I've experienced, um, the most interesting thing about thinking about the future is not predicting it. It's just, uh, y- using it as a heuristic to think about the present. So as an example, um, you know, venture capital investors, if they're good, make their money on betting on the right companies. Mm-hmm. And, and, and many uh, people assume that that means that those venture capital investors are very good at predicting the future, at, at basically like yeah. cherry picking, you know, the best bets. And, um, you know, I've worked in a number of startups. Before writing books, I worked in a number of startups. I worked at a VC firm. And my impression was somewhat different. Um, like my impression is that the best VCs, at least that I've interacted with personally, it's not that they have a, it's not like you could tap their brain and get a nice, you know, 20 year trend report Mm -hmm. with a McKinsey ribbon on it that, uh, that, that that is somehow more insightful than everyone else. It's not that at all. It's actually that they are highly tuned to thinking about the present and are also unusually aware of their own assumptions. So, for example, um, you know, like when you travel to a foreign country, mm-hmm. one of the, you're going to, it'll be fun. You're going to have a good adventure. But one of the more interesting things about it is that traveling to a foreign country suddenly allows you 
to look in the mirror and realize what assumptions you and your culture bring to the world and to your life, right? So, and it'll be in weird ways that you didn't expect, right? Like you might go into your first international jaunt Mm -hmm. and sort of think, oh, well, yeah, I mean, like the language is going to be different, like X, Y, and Z. But then you show up and it's like, oh, whoa, like I didn't even realize people showered this way, right? (laughs) Like I didn't didn't expect showers to be the difference. I expected food maybe to be Mm -hmm. different, right? So like like that's sort of like a silly example, but I think it's a really important one because – when you return home, you can carry that with you. You can, you can carry that mental flexibility of having realized the box you live in. And we all do, right? Like that's, it's important to have those, so those the, rules. So, the, so, by, so by your logic, the, the VC tries to stay out of that box as often as possible, right? At either that or at least be very aware of the, you know. Of the, the limitations of the box. box. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the same is true for for science fiction writers or futurists or anybody who cares about the future, right? And and many people do. Like, you know, like if you want to make good decisions, if you're an entrepreneur and you want to make good decisions going forward, you probably also care about that. Mm-hmm. But I think that the important thing to think about is just that like, yeah, like be aware of your own limitations and I think that's where science fiction can be a really useful tool as well. To me, reading good science fiction is almost like international travel mm-hmm. in the sense that it, it it encourages me to challenge my own assumptions in a way that reading other genres of books, I read all, I mean, I love reading. I'm a novelist, so I read a lot of books of every category, but I think that speculative and science fiction in particular has this interesting um, like side effect of when you read a really good book, suddenly you'll, you'll come back to your own life and you might be like, wow, like what if it was really different? Mm -hmm. And I think that's also another important thing to realize. Isn't that, see, so that's interesting. So isn't that, and we should, we should probably, we should, (laughs) you're you're good at this. Uh, So isn't that, isn't the danger there, that you treat it as entertainment. So you don't you don't go into the movies and say I'm going to build a terminator. And you assume that the you assume that you personally, you personally as a human being cannot build a terminator in your ba- in your backyard. It takes a very very specific personality type, I guess, to say to yourself, "Oh, I saw a terminator on the on the computer on the on the on in the screen and I'm going to build a terminator." And eventually you get something like Big Dog or whatever, right? <laughs> so and and to this and to the same degree, something like uh, William Gibson's Neuromancer. That was ni- I, have, uh-huh. I just I just pulled out nineteen uh, my my book. It was nineteen eighty four when that came out. I think even earlier. I, I saw you post that picture. Yeah. yeah. So that was that was my copy, and I yeah. read that I read that back in high school, and I and the uh-huh. and the vision that he had for the for the future was. So the wild thing is, if you read that book now, it's basically like going on a trip to Japan. It's it's. On the absolute surface, there's it's really calm and, and collected, and there are places that are really really expensive to get into, but mm-hmm. on the on the back end, it's just a it's a riot. So he was very prescient when he wrote that. Um, but what does it take? And you've done you've been an entrepreneur, you've been a VC. What does it take to confirm to convert the idea? I saw a Terminator on uh, in on a movie, or I read Neuromancer, and I want to make the internet. What does it take to do that, to flip that switch? 
So I think that most people are, many people, when they think about flipping that switch, are looking for answers, right? Mm-hmm. So they're, so if they go to Terminator and they, they see Terminator and they're like, oh, sweet, that's what the future looks like. I'm going to build Terminator. Or same goes for William Gibson's work. Like, I read Neuromancer. I'm going to build the internet, right, plus virtual reality, <laughs> you know, like all these other things, right? Um I think that they're taking the wrong lesson from it. And that's because I think that when science fiction gets the future right, it's very accidental. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think what I don't think like I love William Gibson's work. He's one of my favorite authors. But I don't think what makes his work interesting is the answers or the specifics of the vision that he depicts. Um, and it's great that in retrospect, he got a bunch right with Neuromancer, like good on him. Like mm-hmm. that's super fucking cool, but that's not why I like his books. Why I like his, his books is because they force me to ask questions of myself. So like, I'm not walking out of the Terminator theater saying, Term, like I'm going to build Terminator. Mm-hmm. I'm walking out of the Terminator theater thinking something along the lines of like, wow, like what, what do computers mean? You know, when we, in, when we weaponize them, right? Like what, what is that? What happens in the world when okay. that happens? Right. So it sets off a stream of like, what if questions about myself, about how I look at the world, about how, you know, where I think the world is going. And I think that that is the, the most interesting part because most people like William Gibson or top venture capital investors or other people who, whose professions involve thinking about the future. They, I mean, they have a lot of ideas about the future, mm-hmm. right? Like I'm, I'm sure that if you did a podcast interview with William Gibson, he, he would probably have like hundreds of, of like cool that's, and interesting. That's the insights. funny thing about, about, about Bill. Let's just call him Bill. Cause I, I've, I've sure. talked to him, but uh, he's, <laughs> he's like he's like uh he's like your kind of befuddled uncle when you meet him he's actually he, he, does, he doesn't have he doesn't have like a really deep futurist view on things at least not not that he shared in this in the interview that we did and it seems it seems that's that's historically how it is it's like the the smartest guys get are really really smart when they when they sit in their room and woodshed and uh and then on the outside they basically just listen that's the other side of it right yeah, I mean, I, I, I absolutely think, and I think you'd honestly, like, I mean, I don't know, you've probably spoken to much more v, much more VCs than I have, but it, in my experience, like, so often when I speak to top VCs anyway, like, I feel like the, the, the better of an investor they are, and I think this has a corollary in the writing world, mm-hmm. like, the more humble they are about their own, okay, I gotcha. about their ability to predict. And I think that that's the, you know, like I, I honestly think that, it, that to make the best investment or to make the tell the best story or whatever involves much more of uh, bringing rather than um, trying to sort of trawl the, the Internet or, or sort of scenario reporting or something like that and like doing a bunch of projections to try to figure out, you know, what technologies are going to go where like I usually find that it's much more fruitful to like spend more time sitting with my own thoughts so Mm -hmm. literally like like literally sit outside without my phone 
without a computer and just think about what what's going on in my life and how I'm interpreting it and and just letting yourself get deeper into those ideas and I know that as a create like for creative work I have a lot of trouble if I don't do that mm-hmm. right so like only by sort of giving yourself the space to really consider um, whatever question is haunting you um, will you will you be able to make something that that resonates with other people, whether that's an investment, a novel, or anything else. I feel like I should. I feel like this should just be a writing podcast. We'll just call it. We'll just call it writers talking. <laughs> writers talking writing about writing. Future. All right. Yeah, so we, we have about we have about five minutes left of this. This is this is the the, the best thing about this is that is that it is free form. So I, so I want to make sure that everybody understands. So give, give me a couple good books that people should read that you really like. Oh, yeah. okay. Give, give wow, this, this, this could be a dangerously long list. Yeah, well, so give, one, give, one give, book... Give me, give, me five, was, give me five that people should read during the summer. Sure, sure. So one of my favorite books um, that, I, that I was just blown away by this year is called Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari. Mm-hmm. And um, Harari is this world history professor um, have, have you read the book by any chance? No, I haven't. Okay. So, uh, Sapiens is like everything school should be without all the shitty parts. Mm-hmm. So, um, the well, author well, that's, is that's a, what most, that's what most books should be, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. He, the difference is Yuval pulls it off. Okay. okay. <laughs> so, yeah. So it's, it's this sort of, uh, high level history of the entire world, including evolutionary history. And it touches on so many different things. It weaves in so many ideas that I feel like every chapter gave me questions that applied to my own life. Right. Like, and, and despite the fact that, I mean, like what I'm describing may sound dry or dense, but when I was reading it, it was like a page turner. Mm-hmm. And I write page turners. Mm-hmm. So like, I was like, I, I mean, I really, it was one of the best books I've read in a long time. Um, so I, I absolutely loved it. Um, I've also been really enjoying David Mitchell. So I only recently discovered him. Mm-hmm. Um, he wrote uh, Cloud Atlas. Oh, sure, and, sure, sure. Yeah, loads of other books. The first book of his I read was the bone clocks Mm -hmm. and and um and it's just incredible he has this this uh wide-ranging mind and he weaves together these like really big and provoking ideas but one of the most incredible things about his writing is that he he can his characters feel like people within like two sentences Hmm. right which is just mind-boggling mm-hmm. for, for me as a creative writer, right? Like, it, it's hard to create characters that don't feel like cardboard cutouts, and he is an absolute master. It's like, you, like, yeah, I mean, in the first paragraph, suddenly I feel like I know who this person is, and I've met them before, or I've seen them on the street. Um, so, yeah, I, I absolutely love his work. Um, and then, you know, another one that readers might enjoy is, uh, and I'll butcher the name, so I apologize in advance, but Paolo Basigalupi. Um, okay. 
He wrote The Wind-Up Girl, which I think won a Hugo and Nebula Award. Mm -hmm. And his most recent book is called The Water Knife. And The Water Knife is about an American Southwest in a future. Basically, it's like the future according to the drought. Okay. So it's this super dark, like, like Quentin Tarantino story. And like a water knife is, is, is an assassin, a hired assassin who, whose job it is to essentially like kill people to get their water rights to like access, you know, Oh oh, wow. Oh God. Yeah. And it is like, I mean, it like when I say Quentin Tarantino, I'm not kidding. Like it is, pretty graphic and and but like very interesting and very like it's a very engaging story and then finally i'll give you one more um the cartel by don winslow okay is is a it's this it's almost like game of thrones if it played out in the mexican drug cartels okay so don winslow was a journalist for a long time Mm -hmm. he spent like 10 years uh, researching the Mexican drug war um, and personally met and interviewed and knows like many of the journalists who have been kidnapped and killed. He's just done an, an enormous amount of work um, investigating uh, the Mexican drug war, but the cartel is a novel. Mm-hmm. So he, he weaves all of these real world geopolitical situations and things that have actually happened into a narrative that's sort of nail biting and really fascinating. Um, well, if you, so, have you read uh, Savages? I have not read Savages. That's that's one of his. That's one cool. of his best. So that's a that's a stripped down that's a stripped down uh, drug story. Uh, but ah, the whole thing okay. is so is so specifically written. It's he ta- he takes out all the cliche. All right. So oh, we've, so we've cool. done we've done a slightly different thing. We've allowed you to essentially create a create a chapter of a book called uh, called uh, Elliot's thoughts on on the future, and we have <laughs> a good collection of books for people to read. Where can people find out more about you? Uh, I, I'm pretty easy to find. I'm uh, Elliot Pepper, my name dot com. That's E L I O T P E P E R one L one T one P in the middle. I have a severe lack of consonants. Yeah, there's something going on there. Yeah, uh, but yeah, if you just search my name on Google, it'll pop up. I, I use Twitter pretty actively. I have a Facebook page, um, and it's easy to find. And my your books. latest book is called Cumulus. My latest book is called Cumulus. Right, yeah. So thank you very much, Elliot. Thanks for joining us on Technotopia. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. All right. This has been Technotopia. I'm John Big. We will see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>